Uh, I am delighted today um, to welcome uh, in our midst uh, Professor Horace Campbell. Um, I'll say a word about um, Horace's background in a moment, but let me say um, unequivocally and unapologetically that this is a partnership. Um, Horace is actually on his way to a seminar um, at CCR, Center for Conflict Resolution in Cape Town. We decided to hog him for a few days here in Johannesburg. Um, we started last night with a fascinating, um, uh, dare I say, liquid dinner. Um, very good dinner. We had a fantastic debate and dialogue this afternoon. Please don't be intimidated by Horace Campbell. I implore you to challenge him because uh, knowing Horace's presentation is unlikely to be for the faint-hearted. Just a couple of words about Horace Campbell. Horace is currently Professor of uh, Political Science and in particular um, of African-American Studies at Syracuse uh, university in the US um, in the USA he has taught lived spent a great deal of his professional career uh, in the <coughs> continent he has uh, lived in Uganda um, and taught in Uganda he was a part of the very famous and respected Dar school uh, in Dar es Salaam, spent six years in Dar es Salaam, um, and also spent a considerable amount of time uh, in Zimbabwe uh, during uh, the Sapes days, Horace, when Sapes was uh, still a, fo a force to be reckoned with. Uh, Horace is actually a very renowned and respected peace activist and plays a, a very prominent role uh, in the peace movement uh, in the United States. If I could single out three aspects of Horace's work, just briefly, that has fascinated me over the years, is his challenge of, and I quote, the hegemony of Eurocentric thinking to explain African phenomena and African developments. Uh, secondly, he is um, an unapologetic Pan-African in the true sense of the word, striving and fighting for continental unity. But there's an aspect about his work that, that has fascinated me over the last few years. And I remember that, that, that famous monograph about U.S. military doctrine you did. I think it was 2000. And 2000. Um, but, but I singled this part of Horace's work out because here you have this committed Pan-Africanist, Pan-African scholar, but somebody who spends a great deal of his time trying to understand American foreign policy, uh, and particularly the uh, military dimensions of American foreign policy. Horace is going to speak tonight um, about a future Pan-Africanism. I'm sure you'll reflect on the past, but the potential of the continent, and the title of Horace's uh, speech and, and talk, as you've seen in the invitation, is um, Africa's Reconstruction and Transformation Challenges in the 21st Century. 
Just one final word. Horace is also giving a talk at the Africa Institute in Pretoria tomorrow where he will reflect particularly on the Libyan war and its aftermath. Um, so I say again, um, we, we are grateful uh, and, and gracious to have you around uh, Horace and we're looking forward to the debate. The floor is yours. He, he, he boasted with a PowerPoint as I said, but I believe technology let him down. Not technology, your internet capabilities. <laughs> <laughs> My intellectual capabilities. <laughs> Professor Horace Campbell. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> My brother. Welcome. Thank you. I want to thank Chris for that introduction. And I want to thank you for coming. The evening, I hope, would be useful for us if we can reflect on some of the ideas that we think will try to strengthen us. I have been here since yesterday. I came in yesterday morning and um, the CEO of the Concerned African Forum and the team, they have made sure that I go back to my bed thinking. <laughs> Last night we had a lot of thinking together and sometimes we disagreed. We even had more chance and more opportunities to discuss today in a seminar on demilitarization of Africa. And I think we went on for more than two hours. And at the end we agreed that we're just starting the discussion. Yes. So, I want to share with you, and I hope that I will have the time to develop my arguments about reconstruction and transformation and African unity in the 21st century. And I want us to be able to think through the ideas about the uniting the peoples of Africa and building the prospects for the united Africa in the 21st century. This lecture is being given in the year 2013 and it marks 50 years since the inauguration of the formal institutions of African unity that was called the OAU. In this year, the African Union, there have been numerous initiatives to strengthen unity. And there have been numerous meetings. And it is now agreed that unity is necessary in order to strengthen the independence and freedom of Africa. And the statements that have been coming from the grassroots and the leadership in Africa have taken up these statements is that 
the sentiment should be that how we build the building blocks for forging this unity which already exists but it is being held back at the level of the formal state. Six years ago there was a debate about the unity of Africa and the African Union which was then only five years old entered into a grand debate about Africa but many of the leaders of the African Union then and some of the leaders now have not fully popularized the ideas that are in the grand debate about Africa so there are documents prepared by the African Union about the stages, the mechanisms, the organization for how to build the unification of Africa but the African political leadership they are afraid to engage the people and their universities and their scholars and their churches and their mosques in this thing and so the African Union and the African peoples who support the African Union have set an ambitious task of a united and integrated Africa including the ideas of peace and justice and that this Africa must be the fundamental basis must be an integrated prosperous and peaceful Africa so that is the goal it is a stated goal now the very African leaders who were afraid of the debate about African unity they were given a wake-up call in 2011 and this wake-up call came with the NATO intervention in Libya so even those who were lukewarm about where Africa was going they understood that their own safety and survival was threatened by the nature of the relationship between Europe and Africa at this specific moment I have developed my argument about how this has provided an opportunity for us to hasten African unity in a book called Global NATO and the Catastrophic Failure in Libya I argued that the way Gaddafi was executed and was humiliated that this showed that there is no other choice but the African people must unite to be able to protect themselves as human beings in the 21st century so the paper that I'm presenting is arguing that there's renewed confidence on the African continent by the peoples and this renewed confidence is pushing the efforts towards monetary union and in fact the intra people trade at the grassroots is actually much more advanced than the leadership so you can find a Senegalese trader who will come all the way from um, from Dakar and she will go to Zambia and she will be very versatile in all means of currencies and the leaders will have difficulty trying to understand these currency arrangements but the people have already set up mechanisms of how to deal with these questions 
So monetary union is important to harness our resources, but in this paper we want to go beyond that. We want to talk about how the scientific and technological changes will be embraced by the African people and how the bioeconomy and the changes in the world economy that is now in the bioeconomy will allow Africa to leapfrog those stages of industrialization. So the reconstruction of Africa would be on the principle of how Africa is transformed. So the theoretical basis of the paper is how reconstruction is embedded in the reconstruction of the lives of the people of Africa. And the challenge theoretically for us is how to understand transformation to be able to move from the linearity of Europe in terms of stages of development. I'm going to argue in this presentation that Africa do not want to develop. In fact, I run away when people talk about development because development presupposes a certain conception of human organization that came out of Europe at the time of the European Enlightenment. And those of who were, ens who were enslaved understand that that development requires the genocide and destruction of other people's lives. So we are going to be talking today about what is the meaning of transformation and what transformation means. Transformation is not, is not linear and it's not about progress because involved in transformation could be regression. It depends on the balance of political forces and how we embrace an ideation system that can liberate us from the cobwebs that clouds our mind about who we are as human beings in the 21st century. So the conclusion of the paper will take the ideas of transformation and link it to eight central areas of transformation which were transforming the continent in terms of how it relates to the global economy. But in those eight areas of transformation, I will want to focus on two areas, mainly the transformation of energy and water, because I want to see that as the driving force behind the reconstruction of Africa in the 21st century. So this is what I will hope to do in this paper, and I hope you'll bear with me as I go through to deliver it. First point is about transformation. The paper is arguing that we are in a revolutionary moment. I have done a book three years ago about this revolutionary moment. The revolutionary moment is the convergence of multiple forces. Environmental, financial, health, political, technological changes. And in this revolutionary moment, challenge human beings about what we are and what we are going to be. And the fundamental starting point about this revolutionary moment is that the most revolutionary question of the 21st century is how we are going to be human. Ray Kurzweil has written a book. And the book is called The Singularity is Near. The singularity refers to that moment in 2045 
when human beings will have reached the level of convergence of brain power and technology that you can put all the history of humanity of 50,000 years on a nanodot and put it in the human brain and you create these superhuman who will control the world. So the singularity is going to be the robotization of humanity in the 21st century. And they have, Rick Rizal has set up the Singularity University and they are already going about training those people who are going to be these um, people. From Western Europe, we have the main driving force about what human beings are in terms of the hierarchy of human beings that was established by the European Enlightenment. That hierarchy of human beings talks about human beings developing from lower to higher stages of development. And whether one accepts the liberal view of development that comes from Western thinkers such as John Locke or um, Thomas Hobbes and in the latter day um, Walt Rostow take off industrialization and so forth or the Marxist version. The Marxist version is similar. The Marxist version is that human beings come from lowest to highest stages of hierarchical development. In the Marxist, if this, the Walt Rooster have it from takeoff to industrialization, the Marxists have it as from communalism, slavery, um, feudalism, capitalism and socialism. This is a mode of understanding humanity based on the particularities of European transformations and they try to then generalize about human transformations from the particularity. But the more you study Africa, you understand that it's because Europe was on the periphery, on the centrality of global transformation, why Europe had to go through that moment. And there was nothing generalized about humanity. And when you study the history of the peoples of Latin America, the people of India, the people of China, the people of Africa, and you study Sheikh Antad Europe, you begin to understand the richness of the variety of forms of human transformations and why we have to tap into that 50,000 years of human history to go back to the transformations that are necessary. So that um, the, the, the transformations are occurring at a moment when suddenly we have seen that the embrace of that technological revolution, and I would recommend a book for you by Michio Kaku, is called The Physics of the 21st Century. And Michio Kaku in the book Physics of the 21st Century, he divides the 21st century into different quadrants. The first to 2030, from 2030 to 2070, and then onwards. And then he's talking about what are the revolutionary technologies that are going to be unleashed in this century. We already some of them. He uh, said that many of you have cell phones that have more power that, than that was involved in the Apollo landing at the first time. So the technological revolution is here and in the next 
four to five years, we're going to enter in what he calls the solar revolution. Energy from the sun. And this has the potential to democratize economic relations. And in fact, um, it's the Germans who have gone the furthest in terms of their work on the potential for this democratization of energy. In fact, the Germans have set up a scheme called Desertic, where the desert is no longer some real estate that nobody wants. The desert in the Sahara is now being viewed as a major base for providing the energy in the next 30 years for Europe because of the revolutionary technologies in solar technology. And so it is at this moment that we have a new appreciation for this place and the importance of Africa. Thank you. How do we transform Africa? Should Africa develop capitalism to be able to go to socialism? Or is there another possibility for Africa? And that is what we want to discuss. That the cognitive skills of Africa and the convergence of these technologies offer revolutionary possibilities. The, co the, the, the revolutionary technologies are information technology, biotechnology, genetic engineering, cognitive technologies, and robotics. Thus far, those technologies are held back for the, in the interests of human beings because of the militarization of the planet, based on the military management of the global system. But what they have now found out in the studying to develop robotic weapons and studying cognitive skills that the languages of Africa contain within it the history of the cognitive skills of Africa. So now there is a project called the Human Project to develop African languages to tap into African cognitive skills. Because what we consider the primitive languages of Africa are those languages where those cognitive skills are most advanced. So the ability now for Africans to tap into that cognitive skills, harness genetic engineering and information technology in a way in which we can leapfrog the stages of industrial revolution in Europe offers great possibility. And it is that possibility we want to talk about in the transformation of Africa. And so when there is great interest about Africa's economic potential, he says, yes, we know it. But we are coming to it from a different point from where you are coming to it from. You are coming to it from the point of view how Africa's integration... Let me repeat that. How Africa's further integration in the world capitalist system can rescue the world capitalism from the crisis that it now faces. As you know, the world capitalist system is in the worst depression than it has been since 1930. And what we have seen in the world is that the possibilities for 
intensification of the productive forces is now occurring in Africa. And so suddenly people are recognizing that there are these potentialities for Africa. So The Economist magazine that used to write about the, the hopeless continent now talks about the sun rising on Africa. We accept that pun because we are going to embrace that sun for the democratic process. Because for us, and I will say this, we should come at the conclusion, African unity is equal to the full electrification of Africa. And the full electrification of Africa is going to harness the different grid capabilities that comes out of this revolutionary processes that we're talking about. So, the challenges of how we achieve a quantum leap. In other words, how do we achieve a quantum leap in the biotech century is what my presentation is about. Because the quantum leap means that we think in terms of beyond the linear conceptions of development. And development means that we strengthen Western capital or capitalism in general. So, how do we unleash the spiritual health of the African people, which will be the basis of the humanity, and re releasing that spiritual health to replenish the African continent. And to replenish the African continent includes replenishing the lives of the African people and replenishing the natural environment. And that's a project of the reconstruction that we are talking about. This is a project of how do we transform the African peoples in their lives and we want to show that experience elsewhere shows that we have to focus on a number of areas for transformation. And let me mention the eight areas that we need to focus on transformation. Agriculture, housing and construction, health delivery, water and sanitation, electricity and energy, educational transformation, linked to information technology and once we move in that direction the youth in Africa will take even further than where we think it could go and environmental repair these are the fundamental areas of transformation and what we are talking about in transformation is how do we lift the quality of the lives of the African peoples as Chekanta Diop says, to turn all of the resources in Africa to turn Africa into a paradise on earth. So that both at the intellectual level and the level of everyday politics, Africans are finding ways of going beyond the hierarchies that has predisposed us towards being looking as people looking for handouts from what they call donors. And so how do we harness the resources of Africa for this transformation and the most important resources that we are harnessing are the skills and knowledges of the African people tapping into that along with all of human transformations at the intellectual and technological level to create a new educational system.
And it is that educational system that is going to provide the grounds for the repoliticization, the reorganization, and for the reconstruction of Africa. So we're talking about reconstruction, not of capital, because the, brick, the discussion from Wall Street about African rising is about capital and about the construction of capitalism in Africa. Now, I don't think we have to retreat from talking about Africa's growth. What we have to do is to embrace it, to talk about it in relationship to the lives of the African peoples. Because we, the, doing that means that it includes a political engagement to change the forms of political power within Africa. And when I sent my paper to one of my colleagues, he says, what we have to talk about is not just the demographic assets of Africa, but how to dynamize the demographic assets, to unleash the potential of the African youth in the 21st century. So this is where we're going to go. So the first um, transformation we have to do is the transformation of the educational system. That means we have to have an educational system that is embedded in the African knowledge system. And we have to see how that African knowledge system must be the foundation of building the confidence of the African youth to rise above the alienation that comes from Eurocentric education that talks about the fact that for Africa to develop, we must model ourselves of what had happened in Western Europe or North America. And we can go into this in greater detail. So, um, how do we... Um, um, how do we avoid condemning Africa to what is called modern development? Condemning Africa to modern development means that we accept the forms of education and alienation that comes out of the school system that alienates our children from ourselves, so our children grow up as misfits in their own society. The kind of urbanization that we have in South Africa, in Nigeria, in Kenya, where the city is built as a space to alienate the Africans from their own environment, the apartheid city, the apartheid state, is the model around which the African city is built all over the continent because the city was never a space for Africans. Africans was only cheap labor to come into the city. So the African bourgeoisie have internalized that view of Africanization of the industrial forms of Western Europe and we have this crisis of housing. And so housing and construction has to be the basis. And so we should be training millions of young people in carpentry, in engineering, in electricity, and all these things. But yet we have an unemployment crisis when we need to build new cities and new dwellings and new spaces for the lives of the African peoples. But where do the majority of the African people live? Not in the cities. The majority of the African people over 60% of the African people are still involved in agriculture. So the transformation of agriculture are how to uplift the quality of the lives of the people in the rural areas must be the number one task of the reconstruction in Africa. How do we develop the capabilities for a different conception of relationship to land and relationship to the production from the land. 
private property will, will take us probably 50 or 100 years to get out of this view in Europe about the privatization of land. But that privatization is taking with it now the other aspects of privatization that Europe has introduced to the world, the privatization of seeds and the privatization of, of the commons. And so that the very African ideation system that preserve the genetic resources in Africa, that ensure that Africa has this abundance of wealth when it comes to genetic resources, is being turned into its feta because Monsanto is coming in and saying we can privatize seeds and the African states are going along with this liberal view about what we can um, do with seeds. And so the African people were saying, no, we want the right to seeds. And African women are at the forefront of fighting to defend the agricultural future of Africa. But the states of Africa are not defending the rights of women. They'll talk about women. But the women that they talk about is how the women can become alienated from the land and not so that we can provide the electricity, the water, the health care, the schools, so that our communities in the rural areas become places for transformation. If you want to see what is possible at that level, you need to go to Vietnam, where the Vietnamese have embraced the most advanced technology, but the Vietnamese, is one of the fastest growing economies in the world, they've embraced it on the basis of socialism. And so the Vietnamese have said to their people that Vietnamese history and culture is so important and so we in Africa are saying the processes of transformation must be the agricultural and bioeconomy industrial transformation that preserve the rights of the people of Africa that means in the process of transformation we are thinking at the same time about those forms of economic activities that preserves mother earth so in this sense, we are at one with the indigenous people of Latin America who speaks about preserving Mother Earth, the right to live and to exist, the right to be respected, the right to, um, the right to regenerate, the capacity to have a vital life cycle, the right to water as a base source of life, the right to clean air, the right to comprehensive health, the right to, uh, to fight against pollution, the right for the free from the modification of the genetic structure, and the right to prompt the full restoration away from the violation of the rights of human beings. These rights require we think the lessons of Europe and more importantly the lessons of China. Because what China has shown in 30 years that this thing that the Marxists talked about, the development of the productive forces, that the Chinese have been able in less than 50 years to develop the capabilities to compete and actually surpass the West but at the price of the destruction of the natural environment. So the Chinese have a serious health crisis that if you go to Beijing, you cannot even see because of the smog. 
So this development of the productive forces and the forms of industrialization that's been promoted is one that we have to talk about. How do we become earth citizens? And to become earth citizens in Africa, I'm going to suggest that we build on the agriculture and how we do transform the water and energy resources. Which brings me to the riches of Africa. Everyone knows about the mineral wealth of Africa. Now people are talking about the oil wealth. But very few people talk about the water wealth of Africa. Two years ago, the British Geological Society came out with this underground lakes in Africa. Like a big sea that exists under Libya and North Africa. And I have a map which I was going to put up on the PowerPoint of all of these major water resources in Africa. And yet, the majority of African people, over 300 million Africans, do not have access to clean running water. So how do we transform the African access to democracy that the most fundamental democratic right in Africa is the right to water? I've written a paper on this called Water and Democracy in Africa. Because for me, democracy is not about voting every five years. For me, water is a fundamental right. Because you can live without everything else, but you can't live without water. The Libyans had started a project of how to harness this water. And they started this green man-made river. But the French, who have their eyes on this water, to provide water for Europe, do not want to see it, and so one of the first things they did was to destroy that project. How do we think of harnessing the water resources, provide clean water to the people, and for those same water resources to become the basis for the integration and unification of Africa? That is the challenge that we want to put out as a Pan-African project. <laughs> That a Pan-African project is how do we build the canal system and I've actually gone and worked on how this canal is going to be built. Because with global warming and Lake Chad has probably um, lost 25% of its water, one of the main projects is how to regenerate Lake Chad. And we're going to, it's, it's going to require the building of probably 8,000 miles of canals. And if you study the history of canals, you know where canals started in human history. The domination of the Nile by the people of Egypt introduced canal building to the world. So we're only going back to reclaim what we had in Africa. It is from Egypt that we exported the building of canals to Florence, to Europe, to Venice, to um, Greece. And if you looked at the unification of the United States of America, you'd see the canal system, the Erie Canal, that opened up the United States. So we are going to build a canal system, which in the process will probably require two million bridges. So we are going to have an educational system that is going to replenish our schools in the training of engineers, hydraulists, and the kind of training that is going to retransform Africa. So we have agricultural transformation, the transformation of water, and the transformation of the energy resources beyond the idea of scarcity. Because the idea of scarcity comes from Europe. 
The idea of scarcity come from Europe that was on the periphery. So all of the conceptions about economy and economic development come from an idea of scarcity where um, we know now that the, um, the, if we harness um, the resources of Africa, we can move in a new direction. The last great transformation I want to talk about is about how to reverse global warming in Africa, not only by the forms of economic activities consciously, but Wangari Matai talked about the Great Green Wall of Africa. And how do we beat back global warming and the desertification of Africa? And the Great Green Wall is something that has been embraced by people in West Africa, is to build 15 kilometers wide, 7,000 kilometers from Somalia in East Africa to um, West Africa. So that the projects of the regeneration of Africa is something that harnesses African skills, African knowledge, and being proactive how to save the planet Earth. How to save the planet Earth and have Africa. Is this going to be problematic? Of course. It is going to be problematic because it is not going to be a smooth process. There are entrenched interests inside of Africa and outside of Africa who oppose any idea of transformation. Everybody will support development in Africa. And they will tell you about Millennium Development Goals and they will tell you about Millennium Development Challenge. But if you look at those Millennium Development Goals, Africa would not get to them by 2065 or 2165. We need something fundamental and radical and it comes from a radical restructuring of the politics of Africa. Let me conclude so we'll have time for discussion. We are in a revolution period and it was Albert Einstein who said that you cannot have peace which is simply the absence of war. And you cannot hope to have a different conclusion by continuing to do the same things over and over again. Einstein was a brilliant physicist that understood quantum physics. He was also a peace activist and he wanted to see how we could mobilize human energy along with the scientific energies that we have not tapped into yet for a new kind of human society. And he recoiled from the use of the atom bomb on other human beings. The intellectual leadership of the village in Africa during the colonial period did not accept that Africans were inferior. The intellectual class that was trained in the spaces of the missionary schools accepted the idea that Africa needed to develop along lines of Europe. But reconstruction in Africa must look to the knowledge system of Africa and how do we repair Africa. And the repair of Africa brings us to our alliance with our brothers and sisters in the West. It brings us into the reparations movement. The reparations movement is a central question of how to respect the repair of the quality of the lives of our brothers and sisters so that the devaluation of their lives and them 
as human beings that was embedded in the slave trade, which is the basis of Western capitalism, that human beings can transform the organization society for a new dawn of human capabilities. This is where we want to go, and we want to unleash the kind of political, intellectual, and social engagement that can take us there. I think we could have some room for questions. Professor Campbell, thank you, thank you very, very much for a most um, stimulating and challenging expose of Pan-Africanism. You see, what is, what is so fascinating um, when you grew up reading the works of uh, Pan-Africanists and, and Pan-African scholars like Horace Campbell and many others. And here is a man that wrote a book, Horace, uh, I think it was called from Marcus Garvey to Walter Rodney, um, How to Reclaim Zimbabwe. And, and a very recent book uh, of Horace, Pan-Africanism, Pan-Africanist, and um, African liberation in the 21st century. What is so remarkable about tonight's lecture is, is in a sense, <coughs> talking about revolution is, here is a scholar like many Pan-Africanists who have celebrated and studied the Pan-Africanists of, of yesteryear, those that brought us liberation, decolonization. And yet there's something going on about African discourse and debate, and, and I dare say that those um, Pan-Africanists and, and uh, Africanists based in the U.S. are leading the charge, and they're almost providing us with a a, a futuristic Pan-Africanism, Pan-Africanism that is not scared of daring to talk about what should happen. Let me, let me conclude on this note, and then I open up. What is so fascinating? Horace started off by remind uh, by reminding us about the the panoply, the litany of OAU and AU documents. And as I was listening to him unpacking these eight um, pillars of African revolution or reconstruction, if you like, I, I've read them before. They exist. They exist in documents like the um, African Chart on People and Human Rights, the most recent Chart on African Democracy and Elections. Um, the African Peer Review Mechanism, and yes, Prof. Campbell, the new partnership <laughs> for Africa's development. That's just a private joke between those of us who attended this afternoon. Um, once again, thanks, Horace. Most stimulating, most fascinating. The floor is open. Thank you, uh, and thank you, Horace. You know, in 2003, I was uh, working with a group of African leaders and scholars to prepare what became the AU vision, which was adopted in July 2004 by the Conference of Head of State. And one of the first things that I did was to go back to history and analyze what were the conditions that had made transformation possible. 
looking from Greece to the Nada in Egypt to the Great Revolution in China and so on and so forth. And the conclusion I had come to was that in all major transformation, societal transformation that have taken place, you had three elements. The first one was the capacity to reconceptualize reality and come up with a new paradigm. The second element which was common to all those movements was the capacity to generate a constituency for change by creating enthusiasm so that the conceptualization that not the new paradigm is not simply embraced by the elite but is internalized and becomes a tool for liberation. And the third condition was obviously action and action in a decisive and swift manner. I think Prof. Campbell Orris has dealt with some of those aspects, namely, in particular, the need to reconceptualize uh, development and to get away from the linear conception of development, which I call the Egelo-Marxist syndrome, whether it is in the Rostovian mode of kickoff or the five stage of the Marxist uh, analysis to get away from that linear conception to one which you call transformative one and you relate it to quantum physics and talk about leapfrog. And I don't think that I have any problem with that kind of change of paradigm and it is quite common, it is accepted to a large extent that the past of the others the path that have been followed by the others cannot be the future of Africa. There is no reason that the path of Africa, that the future of Africa would be found as has to be found in the trajectory of the others. So there is no question about that. The question though is that while we are asking ourselves how do we go about harnessing African resources for an Africa which will be united, prosperous, and integrated as the vision of the USA. At the same time, others are asking the same question from their own perspective and are asking how do we make sure that we harness African resources for our benefits. And therefore the question is, what kind of strategy you put in place because obviously we are in a terrain where you have competing interests and so on and so forth. So it's not good enough to just think about what can happen if Africans are united. It is important to ask ourselves what can happen if Africans are not. And I think this is where the question of the scenario becomes important. My problem with the kind of discourse that I've just heard is that we are assuming to some extent that we are alone and that there are no counter forces which will oppose resistance if not outright launch outright attacks against the whole thing. You've talked about uh, you've talked about energy water. In two thousand and six G, uh, UNEP 
released a book called Chivo for Global Environment Outlook Number Four. The chapter nine of that book is called Back to the Future. I was privileged to be one of the authors of that chapter nine, one of the co-authors of the chapter nine. We looked at water reform variables, water resources, at land resources, air, the atmosphere, and the biodiversity. And we ended up constructing four scenarios because resources are not static. Water is important, but water can be privatized. We can have thousands and millions of cubic meters of water, but if we move in a scenario of privatization of water, you will still have 300 million who will not have access to clean water. Land. We are witnessing land grab every day. Okay, so if we move in a scenario of market first, obviously those resources will not be put to use by for the development or for the upliftment of the poor. It's only in a scenario of democratic development or people's oriented development that these resources can be meaningful. And you can do the same with biodiversity or even atmosphere. We can industrialize and have respiratory disease and have the majority of Africans dying of respiratory disease as Chinese are dying of respiratory disease today, the poor Chinese, because the wealthy, they do not breathe polluted air. They have air con, <laughs> they eat <laughs> food which is important, and the air that they breathe is important to some extent, so they are not dying of respiratory disease. So what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that it would be important to draw up some scenario of what may happen and then go into a kind of debate as to see what would be the drivers of change in those various scenarios. What would make them possible and what would be a countervailing force. And again, I will say end of that. Because one of the problems that we have with Pan-Africanism today, I would say that Pan-Africanism is weaker today than it was when we did not have independent states. Stateless Pan-Africanism was probably more powerful than state-led Pan-Africanism. Because independence granted to African countries in the 60s for the Francophone and Anglophone, or in the mid-70s for the Portuguese colony, or to South Africa in 94, was part of a strategy which was devised by imperial power to make sure that we would have independence without autonomy, that we would have uh, sovereignty without liberation, including mental liberation, and so on and so forth. So the two main elements that have come with independence is, are, sorry, an elite which has become a major obstacle for Pan-Africanism. People don't have problem with Pan-Africanism. Those who have problem with Pan-Africanism are the elites. And the second thing that came with independence was aid. There was nothing like aid did not exist in the terminology before 1946. And aid institutions have become today a major obstacle to Pan-Africanism. 
So I would think that we need to reflect on those, how do we recapture the state and free it from aid, free African society from elite which are extraverted and which are against Pan-Africanism. Sorry, please, I bring you up. Thank you. Um, I, I didn't warn you that we're going to have a respondent. So, so, so let's, oh, let's, let's just no, treat Professor. No, 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 no. So, it was actually a brilliant start and, and, and uh, the debate has started. So why don't we take, for now, uh, uh, two more hands. Um, Dr. Van Yerden and Dr. Zondi. And then I'll come back to the ultra left. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Um, Oscar van Eerden. Prof, you, you, and I, it's, the, it's one of the points that the, the previous speaker touched on, which is this, the, my question. You spoke of, as Africa economically advances, it will lead to demilitarization. It will lead to there not being enough space for it to militarize. Now, as the previous speaker indicated, issues around food, water, and open spaces, land, the, the military-industrial complex have gotten onto the idea to securitize those. It's now a securitization of food, security, water resources, and open spaces. And so, in the eight points that you outlined, um, it touches on those aspects. Which, my, my point is that the realists are not going to just sit back and allow the Africans to continue on this dream that they have of African unity and advancement. Um, and so, history also shows us that when they don't get their way, the realists, they will simply beat us into submission and subjugation. And so, I just feel that in your talk, that element is perhaps missing. Because, yes, we can advance, the African agenda, the, the transformation of Africa, but the realists are not going to simply sit around and smile because Africa is busy with a big project. And I just want to hear your comments on, on, on that. Thanks. Let's take another one. Uh, Super Hunters on the uh, Prof. Campbell, I want to warn you, he's good at gate crashing parties like last week. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Thank you very much. Uh, that's quite a serious allegation. Uh, Chris needs development. <laughs> right. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, the two points I wanted to raise. Your, your, your suggestion uh, reminds me of Sheikh Anche Diop's uh, suggestion around African Energy Initiative. It's very elaborate and demonstrate how you could use a variety of knowledge, renewables and non-renewables, with energy banks in different parts of the region. Of, of, of the continent, um, harnessing the, the ecosystem of the continent without harming it. It went to the further end, uh, perhaps you have told us, uh, to argue that the, the fact that Africa is, is surrounded by two major oceans is a huge source of power for it, as it is also a, a mechanism by which it could also control global trade, of all global trade, then and still is today, is, is transmitted through the ocean. And the Southern Oceans uh, are home to about 70% of global oil trade today, for example. And they're all on the African continent and all that kind of thing. And he went on to argue 
that his ideas could work if you could uh, move further than the African leaders had done in 1963 in establishing the OAU as a mere regional organization for cooperation rather than an institution for integration that would have its own sovereignty, would have the power to decide over common issues where no national state can actually claim power. The idea of nation states ceding sovereignty uh, to, the, to the common organization so that that common organization could be entrusted with its big goal. Uh, pretty much anticipating what Nyerere would say later on, which is to say the biggest stumbling block to African unity was the nation states. For they, are, they originate from Berlin, they were never part of the African dream, and their logic was always to divide, uh, and all of those kind of things. Have we learned something uh, from that, from those proposals, uh, that we need to think about in order to avoid another great set of ideas dying again, coming to nothing. Have we learned what, what, what else would we do differently uh, from, what, um, from what you propose in order to do that? Do you think that supranational, a greater move towards a union government would enable this a lot stronger? And the last point I want to make is, I, I really truly, truly think that we need to be very mindful of the, of the fact that we haven't quite got to the post-colonial yet. The complex matrices of power that combine questions of identity, that combine questions of power and economics and, 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 and politics, uh, the questions of knowledge and how it is controlled, that complex matrix of power, which is sometimes called coloniality, have not uh, gone, gone away. And those place certain limits to solutions that are, that, 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 that entrust the uh, 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 responsibility on the people to try and do it without figuring out how you're going to deal with the identity question, how you're going to deal with the knowledge question, how you're going to deal with the power question, all at the same time because they're all matrices that reinforce each other and make it very difficult for African agency to express itself. But thank you very much. Three fascinating uh, questions to start with, but I know uh, Sistoka will not allow us to have a patriarchal debate. Uh, we will ha we will open it up to gender at some point. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Um, I, I think that um, I wanted to be brief on some things I didn't go into great detail on. Um, but uh, when you engage in any military, any political struggle, I would think the one the first priority before the military or political struggle is the clearing of the mind and that's why I focused on the cobwebs <laughs> um, because I believe that the clarity about what we are and I'm saying the most revolutionary question for me is for Africans to recapture their humanity that is what revolution in the 21st century means now I am developing what I call emancipatory transmittive ideas and that emancipatory transmittive ideas goes back to one of our prophets Bob Marley emancipate yourself from mental slavery none but ourselves can free our minds and we cannot involve in any political project without that emancipation having said that 
I did not go into great details about the political struggles that we are going to go into. The reason I didn't do that is because I just wrote a book about that. <laughs> I wrote a book called Global NATO and the Catastrophic Failure in Libya about that intervention by foreigners. So it's not something I'm unaware of. But what I'm arguing in that book is actually that the Libyan intervention has speeded up African integration. <laughs> because in 1935, Italy invaded Abyssinia. And when Italy invaded Abyssinia in 1935, the Pan-African movement told Europe that you're in the midst of a capitalist crisis, you're carrying out germ warfare in Africa, you invaded Africa, watch out. This that you have done to Africa is going to rebound on humanity. And you're going to have great catastrophes because of this. Europeans says, no, this is just a little African place. We can do what we want. The depression precipitated greater fascism in Europe. Precipitated war. Genocide. The dropping of the atom bomb. In my paper, I'm arguing that the intervention in Libya is sharpening the necessity for peace in Africa and for Africans to defend themselves so that we will not have any other kind of intervention like the one that existed in Libya. And I I am very aware that there may be others. There may be attempts at others. But I am confident now that from what I've seen among the African masses, that this division between um, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and calling some Africans Arabs and then calling Africans uh, that they are black um, and what they're doing, I, I believe that there's been a political education in Africa. And those of us who are in the progressive movement have to deepen that political education because the, the struggles over Africa are going to be real militarily. I was not trying to minimize them. I didn't go into great details about them because I, I'm hoping that we can, we can strategize to see how we're going to use whatever capabilities we have now to get past that. So I'm not minimizing that at all. The second point about um, the, um, the economic basis of Africa's transformation. I would have thought that um, the neoliberal project has failed. That is, the, the attempt to privatize water, to privatize air and privatize land, it will probably go 20 or 30 more years. But it doesn't have a hundred years. It does not have a future. Because if we continue on this path, and that's why environmental reconstruction is so central, we will not have a planet in a hundred years. <laughs> so the environmental transformation is central to retreating from the privatization of air, privatization of water, privatization, because the planet Earth cannot handle the kind of economic development that Western Europe, North America, and even China and India want to impose on the world. So we have to 
start thinking of replenishment and neoliberalism that is private land, private property. And that's why in agricultural transformation I talked about how in the next 20 to 30 years we have to develop new conceptions of forms of property. It's not new for Africa because if you studied someone like Archie Mfeje, you would understand that one of the failures of the European project in Africa is the failure to establish the idea of private property in land as the norm within African societies. And those of you who want to understand Archimam Feji would see the impact that he's made on seeing Africa's social formation and the kind of forms of property relations that are possible. So the privatization, I see it, and we will go through it, you know. The, 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 everybody wants to have their own land and their own house and so forth. So um, the, 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 the people will take care of that. I hope I've answered your question about um, where we're going. Um, the um, Sheikh Anta Diop, I, 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 I hope I acknowledged that I'm not offering anything new. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to bring to um, the current debate what Chekanta Diop has so, so graphically offered to us as the possibilities. And I, uh, I, would, I, would, I would say to you that the, 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 the knowledge basis for the reconstruction of Africa exists already. Those of you who study mathematics would have studied African fractals. And African fractals has revolutionized modern technology. There's a book that you should all read called African Fractals, um, Modern Computing Design. And we can see that when we start teaching African mathematics in the school, what revolution there will be in education in Africa. Um, this man studied African fractals because he was flying over Africa and he noticed that African villages are built on a fractal basis. Now, fractal mathematics has revolutionized our understanding of modern computing without the possible, without understanding fractals. Do we teach fractals in Africa? No, we teach Euclid. <laughs> so, I'm saying that there's so much room for us tapping into this knowledge that is all around us. And I don't use the term union government so loosely because people will think that our pan-Africanism is about government. So when it comes, the people will force it. But I think before it comes, it will be layered. It will be layered. We will have a process where some people will come together and some will resist. And like, like Morocco. Morocco was foolish. Now Morocco is knocking on the door because Morocco thought it should try to join the European Union. Morocco now sees that European Union is not going anywhere. Morocco wants to rejoin the African Union, but he wants to set conditions for joining the African Union. But Morocco is living on an outdated concept of colonialism, and this is where you're right, that the project for the complete decolonization of Africa is not ended. We still have the Comoros, we still have Western Sahara, and we still have 28 colonies in the Caribbean. But many of our African leaders have not carried forward this discussion about the anti-colonial struggle. And as Kwame Nkrumah said, as long as one part of Africa is under colonialism, we are threatened. But um, I, I think that the, in South Africa, um, we are looking to you 
as the one the last spaces to be um, part of this big struggle to be at the forefront where your educational system will be central to what has been done for the most successful liberation process in the 20th, 20th century. Many people do not celebrate the fact that the Pan-African movement and the Pan-African liberation process has been the most successful. What we, we, what we teach our children is about failed states and Afro-pessimism and so forth. Let us celebrate what we've did, but let's go and build on it for something new. Thanks, Prof. Uh, that was quite uh, detailed. I, I see two hands here. Any, any more hands? Uh, we, I think we should go for another, what, 10, 15 minutes? One, two, take us three. Sistoko? <coughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Professor. I think your topic is very relevant. It's been on my table for almost four years and I've asked the question how can we bring a change to Africa as a whole to bring a better life for Africa and I think we're sitting in the venue to unlock this problem where do we come from we come we, we started with an auction wagon and then we ended up with Henry Ford and eventually we landed on the moon how did we get to the moon we got to the moon by utilizing <coughs> university, the R&D, and today South Africa is the most powerful section of Africa. We as South Africans should unlock the R&D component within the university, take the, med, the power of the brain and address the issues that are a concern at this present moment. South Africa and the rest of Africa has got more minerals than the rest of the world. <coughs> and we seem to have lost it all. I have a number of topics on my table and I've searched the universities last night. Where can I unlock this awesome research that we can address the issues of Africa. In South Africa we have about 55 million people of which 10 to 12 million is without work. If we have to put South Africa on a stock exchange in London tomorrow, before we finish our cup of coffee, it will be sold out for a song. And guess what will happen? The people that will purchase South Africa will come in here with probably 350 or more million people within five to ten years and we will sit back and say what have we not seen about the rich minerals that was given by God to this wealthy country we, we can unlock the power that you have questions, how are we going to do the transformation? We cannot just put it in front of a cabinet of a country, the politicians, to unlock this. The, the mechanism is within the power of the mind. There's a word that says knowledge is power. The knowledge of our final degrees, bachelor degrees, master degrees, 
Dr. Dickenstrup should focus on the problem that we have in South Africa and Africa. At the moment, we are South Africans. Africa is looking down to South Africa and saying, please come and help us. We have various institutions. We are a bright nation. Once we unlock this by utilizing the RMB, we will have sufficient power. I've been on the power for our country for almost 21 years. My research covered the power management. When I look at coal stations, nuclear stations, water problems, and the poverty of people that haven't got jobs, my heart burns, I ask the Lord, spend my life for another 30 years. I have to bring, I have to find out the good. And what your message has done tonight has just underpinned and so my thoughts that there is hope for Africa, there is hope for South Africa. We have to unlock the power of knowledge in the universities. Thank you very much. Thank you. But by the way, I should just say that uh, we, we are recording the proceedings and it will be made available uh, both uh, on the website if, if anybody interested. That was Dr. Fisser. Uh, we're going to give it to Anton Pillay. That's Dr. Van Yerden. So I identifying names. That is Dr. Zondi. There's Professor Alin Saul. In fact, it's Professor Zondi. Sorry. <laughs> Master to be Anton Pillay. Thanks for your discussion. It was very informative, but I feel it's uh, very idealistic and utopian in some aspects. My question to you is, uh, please explain something which you have not really discussed too much about. It's Africans, the Africans' persecution of Pan-Africanism, for example, uh, UN Resolution 1973 on Libya. It was South Africa, Nigeria, and Gabon who voted in unison with the Security Council to invade Libya and ignore the AU roadmap for peace in that country. Thank you. Aziz? <laughs> I'm just checking. <laughs> one last one. Good gender balance. Dr. Shilao. Thanks for your insightful talk. And Dr. Weston Shilao. Professor Campbell, uh, are you by any chance aware of uh, this cancer? Are they called Pan Africanism? This canker that impedes attempts. This canker? Canker, yes. That's canker. <laughs> it's a malady of sorts. Cancer. The canker. Cancer. Yeah. Uh, the big men, little people, they call them in Africa. Whereby, as you so eloquently put it, uh, there's need for a holistic approach to development that no constituency, no person should be left behind. But in almost all African politics, there's always this divide that as long as the big men have their way, 
the little people can always be left on their own devices. And you can see it even uh, at the AU level, because one of the critiques of the AU is that uh, there's this lack of the principle of subsidiarity. There's this propensity to make decisions in the interest of the masses without consulting the masses. So you even see it at the passion that is dissipated when it comes to, for instance, uh, this uh, assault against the Rome statute. But you don't see the same passion dissipated when it comes to moving the lot of the poor on the continent. So, Prof, are you all this country? Thanks. Yeah, he, he didn't mean to say cancer. He is cancer. Right. Good. Please introduce yourself. Thanks, Prof. My name is David um, with Mapungubo Institute. Um, I think that in addition to just a point in passing, in addition to traditional institutions of knowledge, we need to go beyond and look at other alternative institutions and spaces of knowledge, such as the community, for instance. Uh, because I think uh, there, there is a lot that is going on in terms of both transformations, uh, transformation of, transformations of which are brought by struggle. And I think uh, being able to study those particular struggles, even at a community level, uh, brings in a lot of um, praxis, knowledge, and um, a lot of policy perspectives around options and alternatives. So I think it's very important that we, because you know, I've read a very long and extensive article written uh, in the American Interest about the decline of the traditional university as we know it. Um, that, for instance, half of the universities that you have in the U.S. today, as you know, and the traditional universities, um, may not be in existence in the next 30 to 35 years. Um, and that is informed by uh, the revolution around ICT, uh, that people will access higher education even you know, more differently. And I think when you speak about those transformations, particularly on technology, Africa should actually define itself in, in that regard. I also gathered from your input that you seem to be not emphasizing on the cohesion and the unity of the African leadership. The cohesion. 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 Or cohesion. <laughs> uh, the cohesion of the uh, of of the of the African leadership, uh, particularly at state level and interstate level. Uh, because the, the message that I'm, I'm, I'm getting coming out from your presentation is the fact that you can have, you can identify, embrace these transformations as they happen everywhere in the continent and actually have movement and agency going forward. And um, state leadership, political leadership will have to build on that momentum. Because I, partly I would agree with that sentiment. I mean, you have not said it expressly, but. I would agree with that sentiment because I, I really think that 
part of the drag on the continent really it's, it's the slow pace of or the lack of decisiveness uh, on the part of African leadership uh, well luckily enough the democratic the demographic dividend is going to sort of solve that problem as long as we have young people this 60% of a young continent that will come up the ranks imbued with you know correct thinking you know robust ideas progressive ideas and so on that for me will, will, will actually assist us moving forward because there are certain things that you don't understand which should not be happening in the continent for instance the whole question of land grab is, is quite a very serious uh, thing for, for, for me personally. So, Prof, I, I really agree with you um, on, on a number of points, and I think uh, uh, you might want to elaborate on those that have just spoken. Thank you. I will not make a gender comment. You mustn't. <laughs> Thank you very much, Prof. Um, maybe the first question would be. Given, I think what we are in your presentation, what I uh, can gather is that we are trying to focus us on the future. What is the ideal? What is this Africa project that we ought to work towards? 50 years celebration of the AU. One of the um, projects that uh, the AU chairperson and Kosazanazuma has been driving in a consultative way with various um, stakeholders is the visioning of Africa in 2063. What would be the drivers? Education, resources, some of the things that you've mentioned. I'd like to hear your view on that. What's your thinking from where you are about some of the propositions that are coming out of that? Secondly, you raised the issue of women in the lead with respect to some of the interventions, particularly of privatizing resources such as the seed, uh, Monsanto and what is happening in our continent. But for me, what that represents is that the point that Alwan uh, raised earlier, that in this African project, nobody is going to wait for you to continue without some intervention which may actually not be in your interest. So while the water issue becomes important and the energy. electric energy, what would be your view about infrastructure? I mean, you are building water canals as infrastructure, obviously. But for any agricultural growth, part of the challenge is infrastructural development that impedes Africa's agriculture, in my view. But if one were to take the point that Alan raised about will the others actually wait for you to do what you want to do? The case of Egypt, currently. Maybe what you said were in a state of revolution. revolutionary moment. Revolutionary moment, yes, that's how we got. One might have started, in my view, as indeed popular mobilization and, you know, rejection of what society wanted to change, I am not sure whether what we can say is happening now is really what were the objectives 
of that process of what was the so-called, you know, the Arab Spring. And I'm not sure where you can how you can characterize this revolutionary moment if we to just use Egypt as an example. Okay. Let me take those. Thank you. Can I take those? Yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, also, Prof, uh, uh, please just round up as you uh, okay. respond to this. Okay, um, thank you so much. Um, and I hope the Lord grants you another 30 years. <laughs> because I, I, I'm, I feel your spirit and I feel you about where we're going. Um, because our Pan-Africanism is inclusive. We do not support any Pan-Africanism that is based on the European conception of race. Because we, that's part of the transformation that we are going to go through. And I want to underscore what you said about the, the capabilities, not just in university, but from kindergarten. How we can harness the knowledge. I, I, I would really want, I teach in my course on Pan-Africanism, one of the required reading is Kaku's book on physics. <laughs> because when Kaku is talking about reverse engineering the brain <laughs> and uh, the kind of projects that are going on in human cognition, I, I, I wanted to mention in my presentation that they had the Human Genome Project to map the genes of human beings. They also are setting up the Human Cognome Project to establish the cognitive skills of human beings and Africa is central to that project in terms of understanding the history of humanity. Um, I tried in my presentation not to be prescriptive but a lot of the comments wanted me to be much more forceful about the political struggle to overcome imperialism. I think that's what people wanted me to say. <laughs> but you know uh, I'm not saying it because it's going to come out of real life. <laughs> it's going to come out of actual confrontation of people trying to build their lives and other people trying to prevent their lives. So whether I say it or not, it's there. It's ongoing. And which brings me to the question of revolution. What is a revolution? A revolution is that moment when the ideas forms of organization and structure of society can no longer hold the society together in the old way. And Lenin adds a number of things. That when the ruling class cannot rule in the old way, when the ideas cannot hold the masses in the old way, but Lenin then talked about what kind of party would be necessary for the revolution. Now, what Lenin did in, in, the, in, in, in what was Russia is that they had one of the most profound revolutions and we from the Pan-African movement, we have made a study of that. It's not yet published. It's Walter Rodney about the, the Pan-African worldview of the Russian Revolution. But, but the point we're making is that in this revolutionary moment, there comes a point when the ideas that govern society can no longer hold society together. Neoliberalism and liberalism cannot hold society together. And they're trying to use militarism to hold society together. And that force especially in Africa, is creating resistance. Egypt is the most profound example. Now you said that you cannot see where the revolution is going. That's because you think of revolution in terms of an event. <laughs> in other words, in the United States of America, the revolution started in 1776. 
And you could tell the Americans in 1778, oh, your revolution is not succeeded. You have to wait seven more years before you saw the American Revolution went. Similarly in France, the French Revolution started in 1789. By 1793, they were just in the initial stages of the revolution. Napoleon did not appear until 1797. They had to go through six or seven stages of the revolution. But you want us to have a conclusion of the Egyptian revolution two years after the revolution started? Give it a little time. <laughs> this is the immediatism of the kind of Western liberal thinking. Because what we have to do is we have to study the balance of forces in Egypt. The ideas that are in motion, the forms of social organization, and the structural conditions which gave rise to the revolution which have not gone away. And it is those structural conditions that the people are confronting that will accelerate the revolution process. And I'm con as I was telling Miranda last night, the Egyptian revolution is going to shock the world. Because the forces that are going to be unleashed and the war that's coming out of that revolution, Africa has to unite even faster to ensure that we do not get the kind of genocidal activity that came out of, war, of World War II. That's why I believe we have to talk about Libya. And those who raise the argument here about responsibility to protect, about the manipulation of the United Nations. We should talk about it. Every forum, we should talk about it. What South Africa did was wrong. But we should tell the South Africans, we're not going to hold it against you. We want you to learn from it to say, how are you going to redeem yourself from it? How is it that the roadmap for Africa for the future, to get rid of external manipulation, we will learn from what happened in Libya. So, so that I, I would say to my brothers and sisters, and I have interacted with the South African ambassador to the United Nations. We invited him to my university. Because the, the, the idea of responsibility to protect Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, they are now very active in the Security Council of the United Nations that this will not happen again. So, this experience of Libya, I would say we would critique them if they did not learn any lessons from it. What we need to do is to popularize the lessons that we learned from it. That a little country such as Italy, France or Britain cannot solve their financial and economic crisis by coming to invade Africa. And I think they're going to pay a very high price for it because, because many people talk about the world economy without understanding that we are in a major capitalist depression. There are three big crises in, in Europe. The sovereign debt crisis, the banking crisis, and an investment crisis. But what they've done is they've turned the, 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 the banking crisis into a crisis of politics. So that all you're getting from Europe is chauvinism and racism. And so we have to help our European brothers and sisters that you cannot resolve this crisis the way it was resolved in 1939 through militarism. So that is why the process of unification of Africa is also a process of pushing for world peace. I did not elaborate on it as much as I didn't elaborate on it. But war is going to come out of Africa's resources. We already see it. But what I'm saying to you is that we're equal to the defense of Africa. 
We have done it in fighting against enslavement. We have done it in fighting against colonialism. We have done it in fighting against apartheid. And we should stop demobilizing our people by telling us we have to look to others. So I, 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 I'm hoping I can answer your question. When I gave this presentation in Addis Ababa, somebody accused me of the same thing that I'm utopian. Well, if I'm utopian, let me be utopian. <laughs> That's what I'm dreaming for. <laughs> and I'll work towards it intellectually. I hope I'm not just utopian. I hope I'm putting my minds and my brains to it so that when I meet younger people, I will inspire them to see this utopia. Because when I was in Tanzania, they used to tell us the same thing. Tanzania was very poor. My salary in Tarsal University of Arsenal was 25 US dollars a month in the midst of structural adjustment. The Ford Foundation and all of them came to Tanzania and said, look, South Africa is so big and strong and powerful. Why don't you give up the liberation struggle? It is utopian. Because South Africa is going to dominate all of Africa because its economy is so big. He says, okay, well, let us live with that utopia. We're going to organize around it. And we're going to see what the results are. I am asking you to join with me in organizing around this African project. It's not my project. The project that the chairperson of the African Union is talking about, I am one with it. <laughs> I am one with it, but what we wanted to do is to transform the African Parliament from being selected to have real democracy at the grassroots in Africa. And the democratization process is not this formal Western democracy that they're talking about, because it's not real democracy that they have in the West. They have representation every five years, but after that, you try to, to take away people's rights. So I want us to deepen the concept of democracy, so that the democracy is the right to health the right to water, the right to electricity, and how those basic democratic rights can transform the lives of the people. So, I, I, did I, is there somebody's question I missed? No, because I, I hope I covered yours to say that, that, that those leaders that you're talking about... The women issue and the Monsanto... Yeah, the, the, those leaders you're talking about will be swept aside. Well, those leaders they do not have a lasting face in the history of Africa. How many people remember Hufo Boyne? Or remember Jomo Kenyatta or Hastings Banda? There was a time people thought those were institutions. And I'm saying the current revolution is going to sweep aside these leaders. <laughs> oh, oh. Okay, we're going to sweep them. And, and those who are patriotic Africans will join us. <laughs> okay, about the women question. Well, the woman question in Africa is a question about how is it we develop new forms of politics. Chikanta Diop addressed this in that very same book, our what he called bicameralism, that we have to have special arrangements for the representation of women so that the rule of women goes back to the matriarchal principles and the what, what, what we call the Layla principle. The Layla principle in African fractals is the politics of caring because the, 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 the history of the past 200 years has lodged the politics of care in the women. In others, women are the forefront defender of life in Africa. So 
is the African project to defend life. And if the project is to defend life, it must defend African women. And provide, the state must provide those requirements for life. So the Leila principle is about life. And procuring African life centralizes women, not in the way in which we talk about women adding them on or adding on women. It is that the central constituent basis of the reconstruction of the economy has to do with the skills, knowledge and the organization of women. And I would say that what we've seen in Egypt so far from the women leadership, Asma Mahfouz, when she went on television, the day before um, January 25th, we see a kind of leadership coming up already that it's going to shock the world. We're going to have something very profound coming from them. But Prof, maybe before you finish, Chris, I think what, one of the things that I was raising in respect of Egypt, I'm saying you had indeed, as you say, this moment in which you are in of revolution. But I'm saying where we are now, my own view is that there is a contestation. There are those who are opposed to what might have been the ideal in the beginning. So it's not like saying one wants to see where it is now. But I'm saying that contestation is not going to disappear because indeed others would want to divert the project. Look, yes, but what I'm, say, what I'm saying, what I'm saying, the contestation will be resolved through struggle. <laughs> and I'm saying what we have to do is that we have to align ourselves with those who we want to win. In other words, we will align ourselves with the women and the youth and those who want to restructure the Egyptian economy so that the Egyptian economy serves the Egyptian people and not 1% of the population. So we have to develop alliances with the Egyptian revolution and with the revolutionary forces so that when the war comes, as it will out of this revolution, we will align with making sure Egypt can go to peace. Because oh, oh, the, the, the militaries in Egypt, they want to go to war over the Nile. What is this crazy idea of that the militaries... But there's all kinds of ways that you can create warfare. That is why we have to pay attention to it. I don't believe... I don't call it any Arab Spring. Because Egypt is in Africa. <laughs> we call it African Awakening. Thank you. Uh, colleagues, um, uh, friends... Uh, did you say in others they called you Ethiopian or Utopian? <laughs> no, one person called, but others people welcomed it. Okay. No, 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 but, but, but on, on a serious note. Even if uh, Prof. Campbell started off as quote-unquote Utopian, we must agree that the question and answer session, the debate that ensued, was was embedded in a deep politics and a political reality. And I want to conclude on two notes before I thank some people. The one is, we find ourselves in a very precarious situation in South Africa, in that we need to bring the horror scambles of the world to reignite something that we used to be known for debate. There is frankly a lack of debate in our society and there's even less of a debate about Africa and African affairs. And let me conclude on the same note you can do it, uh, I can do it on during last week's lecture. 
Professor, I, I, I do not want to uh, make you morbid and, and sad and send you off on a sad note. There is not a single South African university in this country that does not claim in its mission and vision statement to be African, to be pro-African, uh, to wish to be a cradle for African thinking and discourse. Yet, go and scratch the surfaces just about our curriculum. And you ask yourself, where is that? Uh, we want to thank you. Remain utopian. But I again suggest to you that that, that expose of yours is contained in so many documents, declarations, treaties and the like. And one of the things you did not say is that there is a serious institutional and implementation crisis that we're facing this country. If we can start just there, then maybe it will set us on the road to achieving this long-term vision. Uh, please join me in thanking Horace Campbell for coming to South Africa. And I wish to state in front of the camera at UJ, we're going to try and make a plan to make him a regular visit to our shores.